Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans in chapter 7? And as you're turning, just a word of thanks. It's great to be with you. Um, just hearing you sing this morning, these last seven years, it's hard to believe, seven years, but as Martha and I are in a number of places uh, sharing and ministering, and uh, especially in connection with the ministry of VBTS, uh, one thing I greatly miss, often I miss, is the, the singing of the fellowship. And uh, really, really encouraged my heart. So thank you for, for your ministry uh, to us. I'm glad that they, next Sunday, I guess, are moving back to 9.15 as opposed to 9.30 starts our pre-COVID time because it will give us more time to sing. And that is, uh, I think, one thing that uh, has always marked us and a great delight. First of this month, uh, Martha and I were uh, at another location and were ministering to a group of missionaries in an organization called Bibles International. And their commitment is to uh, take the Word of God and the lingua franca of the people where they're ministering and then to turn this into the Scriptures. And it was a wonderful experience for us to have, to be able to rub shoulders with about 60 or 70 missionaries in one room and to be able to take them uh, through uh, the Book of Romans. And as we were doing that, one of the times that we had together was dealing with this specific topic that I want to talk to you about today. And that is this, sin and our Christian life. Sin and our Christian life. And there are really three questions that we constantly ask ourselves, that we're asking God as we go through the Holy Text. But these questions are important. Number one, why do I sin? Especially when I don't want to. The second question I think that is weighty upon us is, will God ever rid himself of me because I'm so prone to sin? Will that ever happen? And then the third question I think that dovetails into this, that Romans 8 is going to deal powerfully with, and that is this, is how do I take sin and conquer it? How do I put it to death in my life? How do I take the sinful desires that constantly are just roaring through me and in my mortal body? How do I defeat that? How do I overcome this? So these three questions are the focus of the end of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. Of course, for time's sake, we're not going to be able to go through all of chapter 8. But I would say to you that these questions must be addressed. The questions of why do I sin? The question, would God ever rid himself of me because I'm so prone to sin? And then thirdly, how do I put sin to death in my own body? Follow in the text, if you will. Look at chapter 7 and begin at verse 21, if you will. If you don't mind, in honor of God's word, would you please, if you're able to stand, to stand at this time and I'll read the scripture, have prayer in their seat. If you're able to, if not, please remain seated. I find then a law that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. For I delight in the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war, fighting against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself 
with my mind, I serve the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the rule, the law, the rule of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the rule of sin and death. For what the law, Torah, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteous requirement of Torah might be fulfilled in us. Not by us. In us. We who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin... Yet the Spirit is alive, implied, in you because of imputed righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through His Spirit who dwells in you, So then, brothers, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live or are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices, the evil practices of the body, you will live. Father, we have just a few minutes to open up the Scriptures with these dear people. Thank you for truth. Thank you for truth that is empowered by God Himself. And so as we look at these words, I pray that you would dissolve anything that I would say that would not be according to your word and you would highlight and impact with anything that is according to your word. So as we leave here, we leave here saying, what a great God. (laughs) What a wonderful thing it is that I, in my mortal body, possess God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts for these few moments with your incredible text to lead us into an understanding of the nature of sin and the power of the Spirit. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would say to you, brothers and sisters, that if we, if we, myself included, if we read Romans improperly, we will not only be off-center theologically, but we're also going to be crippled in our Christian walk. Romans stands at the beginning of 22 church letters. You have four biographical sketches through the eyes of human authors called the Gospels. And then you have 30 years of church history from the time of Jesus' ascension until Paul's and first incarceration in AD 62. And then you have these incredible documents called church letters, Romans to Revelation, 22 of them. And the way that canon has it in front of us, handed down to us from the church itself, it's interesting to me that the book of Romans stands first. And it stands here first because if you're not going to enter the other 21 ladders properly through the eyes of Romans, you're going to be off kilter. You're going to be crippled in your spiritual walk. So it's absolutely important and necessary that we come to the text and open the text and allow this text to take over our hearts and thoughts and lives. So when I ask the question, why do I sin? The Apostle Paul addresses that in part. I wish we had time to go through all of chapter 7. Really, it goes back to chapter 5 and 6 and then 7 and 8. But we can jump into his three conclusions. One in verse 21, one in verse 22, and one in verse 23. Conclusion number one, he says this, I find, that's the word to discover. I made a personal discovery. This is only found a couple of times in the book of Romans, but this is Paul's personal discovery as a believer in Christ. I discovered a law, a principle, that in me evil is always present. The one who desires to do good. This is such an important statement for us because this is going to reach back into the organic unity of this incredible section from chapter 5 to chapter 8. And so the Apostle Paul is reaching back, and if I could just take a moment and help you know this because it's important as you work through the text. What the Apostle Paul did in chapter 5 and 6 is he talked about our union with Christ. And what that means is this. There's only two spheres in which all of humanity belong. It's either one or the other. The one sphere in chapter 5 is to be in Adam. The other sphere is to be in Christ. If you're in Adam, sin rules your life and eventually death. If you're in Christ, righteousness rules your life. The imputed righteousness of Jesus covers you and righteousness rules and that leads to eternal life. So you're in one of two spheres. We learn from the text that the Holy Spirit goes in and takes someone, the moment they believe, takes them out of the sphere of sin and death and places them into the sphere of righteousness and eternal life. And all I can say, brothers and sisters, is praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is something God does. I don't extricate myself through discipline to come out of this sphere and be placed in this sphere. No, that's not Romans 5 and 6. My union with Christ is predicated on my faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And I give to him my life. And the moment that happens, the Holy Spirit takes me. It's called the baptism of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. He takes me out of Adam, this death, this 
sin and he immerses me into the body of Christ, in Christ. So if you can keep that in your mind, it's important for us because one of the things that you have to keep in mind is this. When you are in Adam, you're in a mortal body. When you're in Christ, you're still in a mortal body. You don't get unhitched from Adam's race. You don't become perfect. So this mortal body, by definition, mortality means that you are subject to decay. Just get up in the morning at my age. Decay. Alright? And death. But also spiritually to the deceit of sin. That's a mortal body. It is subject to decay, to the death, and death, and also to the deceit of sin. This you have by faith placed your trust in Christ. The Spirit takes you out in your mortal body and places you in your mortal body in Christ. Where's righteousness? So that we have an, what the Puritans call an alien righteousness. It's being in Christ means His righteousness just absolutely covers me all the way around. That's what it means to be in Christ. But I'm still in this mortal body. So the Apostle Paul says, I made a discovery. Look at verse 21. Here it is. Verse 21. I find then this law that whenever I want to do good, guess what's always there? Evil. Number two. His second summary is this. For, the one who wants to do good, for I delight in the rule of God in my inner man. This is, this is my delight. My delight is in the government of God in my life. When I was here in Adam, Romans 1.30 says, we were haters of God. It's a powerful statement. It begins in verse 30 of chapter 1. Slanderers, we were slanderers, and we hated God. Now, as being in Christ, we are individuals who adore, who adore the rule of God in our life. A total distinction from what we were in Adam to what we are now in Christ. So he makes this wonderful statement that I think is a powerful statement. In fact, just look over in chapter 8, if you will, and down in verse 7. It says this, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, it will not subject itself to the rule of God. No, it's not able to do this at all. So when someone is in Adam and under the rule of sin and death, there is hostility toward God, or Romans 1.30, haters of God, the text says in verse 8, uh, verse, yeah, verse 7, and will not subject itself to, to God. In fact, it says in Romans 1, 28 and 29, that they delete God from their knowledge base in their unsaved condition. And also, it says, there is no ability for somebody in Adam to ever want the rule of God in their life until regeneration takes place, until the Spirit takes them out of in Adam and places them in Christ. At that moment, there is this radical transformation, and now I embrace the rule of God. So, when we look at the question, why do I sin?, 
It's a discovery that the Apostle Paul made in verse 21 that, okay, I, I am now in Christ, but I'm in my mortal body. So because I'm in my mortal body, I'm still going to have these propensities to the deceit of sin. Question two, I think is important, and that's this. Well, if I'm, if I'm in this condition, would it, why would even God, why would God even want me? I mean, I, I sin every day. Not a day goes by that I don't fail God. Why would he want me? So that's kind of nagging in the back of his mind. But in verse 22, he makes the statement that there is this inner delight that I never had before I was saved. And that inner delight, 722, is I really hunger for God's authority and rule in my life. Verse 23, 723. However... There is another law, a different law, different than the rule of God, verse 22. It's a different rule. And it's in my bodily members. And it's waging war, some of your texts have. I love Doug Moo's translation. It's fighting. It's a, in other words, our mortal body is a battleground. It's a bloody battleground. <laughs> and all of this war language in verse 23... Waging war against the rule of my mind. That's in verse 22. That's the rule of God, the authority of God that I just long for. It's going hard after that. Desiring to make me captive to the rule of sin, which is still in my members. So here is my mortal body. It comes out of Adam, placed into Christ because of regeneration, because of faith in Jesus. But I still am eagerly waiting for the full change in this mortal body. Turn over to chapter 8, verse number 23. The Apostle Paul mentions this a little later. We'll never get to this in this sermon unless you want to stay here for a couple hours. But at least we can say this, verse 23. Look, and not only this, but we also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of sons, and that is the full redemption of our body. We look forward to that. But we're eagerly longing and eagerly waiting for this. But meanwhile, back to chapter 7, if you will, back to chapter 7, we find ourselves in a war, a great battle, because we are mortal flesh. So how does he respond to that, verse 24? He responds to it, says, let's stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Or does he say, wretched man that I am? I wish I could say, in the Greek it says, let's sing the doxology. But it is exactly as you read it here in your English text. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? The mortal body is called the body of death. In fact, look over to verse number 10 of chapter 8, if you don't mind. It says this. But if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive, the idea is in you, because you are of righteousness or imputed righteousness or you're in Christ's righteousness. Your body is dead. Verse 10 is very clear, because of sin. Yet the Spirit 
the Holy Spirit is alive in you. I mean, are you getting the idea, brothers and sisters, because when you look from chapter 5 to chapter 8, this whole section is a celebration of justification by faith alone. It's a wonderful section. After coming through 1B to chapter 4, you've got the wrath of God. You've got all of that taking place. And then you have this incredible, incredible dispensing of the gift of God's righteousness to us who believe in Christ. And it's a time of us to look at this theology and what's the next thing we need to do? Chapter 5. We start rejoicing. I love what Martin Luther said, wrote so many years ago, there's not a chapter, chapter of more joy in all of the Bible than Romans chapter 5. There's so much joy coming out of all of this and seeing what the gospel has done to change me. So now, as we move through this, these chapters of joy from 5 to 8, this section, the Apostle Paul is going to help us understand this issue of sin. You know, why do I sin? The reason you sin is because you are a mortal body. You're longing for the redemption of this, 823. But you're still in a mortal body. And every husband knows you're not perfect. Every wife knows you're not perfect. Every child knows mom and dad aren't perfect. Every parent knows children are not perfect. But the beauty of this is how we come to understand. Paul makes this incredible discovery. And the incredible discovery doesn't leave him in verse 24. Look what he says in verse number 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, it is true that my mind is going hard after the rule of God. I want God's authority in my life and none other. On the other hand, it's also true that in my flesh there is this incredible propensity towards sin. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an all-out war. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a struggle. And so we sin. So the question is, you know, would God ever abandon us? So here's what the Apostle Paul does. I hope you can see this from the text. The Apostle Paul reaches his proverbial hand out to the people of Rome, just like he does it here at Colonial Baptist Church, and he puts his hand on your shoulder and taps you on the shoulder and says, now, now. There is no condemnation when you're in Jesus Christ. The word condemnation is a a term from law. It means the death sentence. There is no death sentence for those in Jesus. That's the short answer. If you want the long answer, you've got to read all the way through the 39 verses of chapter 9. That's the long answer, okay? But go to the very end, verse 35, and just as he said there's no condemnation, look at the conclusion of his long answer. It's actually a hymn that we're kind of cutting into, but verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Affliction? And each time you're supposed to say in your mind, no. Turmoil? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Death itself? No. Yet as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're like sheep counted for slaughter. That's what the world looks looks at the church. And as it looks at genuine Christians, that's what we are. Sheep counted for the slaughter. 
So you not only have the suffering from within because of your mortal body, you also have the suffering from without. The afflictions and the persecutions and the challenges and the difficulties. That's what makes the local church such an important part of our lives. There's one place we can go that is safe. There's only one. So when I look at this here, verse 37, he says, Now listen, in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, watch the word, will be able to, what's the next word in your English text? Separate us. Same word, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 39. There is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what he does in chapter 8. In chapter 8, short answer, would God ever abandon me? The short answer, no death sentence if you're in Christ. Long answer, same thing. No condemnation, no separation. Closed. Case closed. But there's one final one. Okay, so... I see I have sin. This is a discovery I've made. didn't take me long to make the discovery. How about you? And thankfully, Romans 8 is here in the Bible to help us. So the question is, how do I deal with this raging, the raging desires of my flesh that if I'm not careful will just seem to overwhelm me? How do I conquer sinful desires? Romans chapter 8 can really be divided in in two parts. After he reaches out in verse 1 and says, no condemnation. He just pats you on the shoulder and says, settle down. God's not going to abandon you. The death sentence has been taken care of in his son, Jesus Christ, who took your death. And where was that? The cross. So he took your death at the cross. So he's already paid that penalty. Now you're in him. His death, your death. So when I think of that in verse 1, he begins in verse 2, and from verse 2 all the way down to verse number 11, he's going to speak to us about what's happening on the inside of us now that we are believers. It's called the rule of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to rule in your body. And then in verse 12, all the way down to verse 30, before the great hymn of triumph in verse 31, All the way down there, these are the actions that the Spirit is going to accomplish in your mortal body. So you got the rule of the Spirit down to verse 11, and then from verse 12 all the way to the end, you're going to have the actions the Spirit is going to accomplish through you. So look at verse 2. Look at the rule of the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 2. For the rule of the spirit of, he's a spirit of, what's the next word? Life. In Christ Jesus. Remember he said in Christ Jesus in verse 1, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the rule of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ Jesus, there's a rule of the spirit of life. That rule of the spirit of life to be sets you free from the rule of sin and of death. 
You got that? There are no exceptions to this, brothers and sisters. There's no exceptions. Uh, Look at 4b, verse 4b at the very end. Us, we, are now, we do not walk according to the flesh, according to when we were in Adam. We now are walking according to the Spirit. The word walk is a, a metaphor for life. We live now, not in the flesh, we live now in the sphere of the Spirit. So when you look at these words as they just develop, those, verse 5, those who are in the flesh, their minds are that way. Those in the Spirit, their minds are this way. Verse 6, the mindset on the flesh, that's death. Mind on the Spirit, life, peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't want to subject itself to the authority of God. It's not able to do this. And everyone in the flesh, you cannot please God. I mean, it's a powerful restatement of what he's already stated back in 5, 6, and 7. The restatement of what our flesh is. Men and women, we pamper our flesh. We we shower it. We do everything. We make it look so presentable out here. But the bottom line is our flesh in no way can please God. There's no way. It cannot please God. I don't care if you've got a PhD behind your name or reverend in front of your name. You're not going to please God in flesh. So look at how verse 9, 10, and 11 work together. And if you have a little pencil, you might underline the emphasis of the text are in two little words. In you, in you, in you, in you. And watch the language of the text. It's amazing. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells, where does it say? In you. Now wait a second. Verse 1 says you're in Christ. That's right. And verse 2 said the rule of the Spirit because you're in Christ. How does that work? Verse 9. When you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the Spirit lives in you. In fact, he says, 9b, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him, meaning God. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is not his ability or her ability to sing, is not even your good works. And we're in Titus right now, how important that is. The distinguishing mark of every person that belongs to God is this. His Spirit lives in you. That's the distinguishing mark. So in verse 10, now if Christ is, here it is, in you. Wait, wait, you just said the Spirit was in me. Yep, I sure did. Verse but if 10, but if Christ is in you, wait a second. How's that working? Well, go back to verse 9. Let's look at that again. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God, that's the Father, dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the same Spirit 
that lives in you, that rules in you, is a spirit that has a Trinitarian relationship to the Father and the Son. That's why I love John 14. John 14 says, Jesus speaks the last night, and he says to his disciples, now listen, guys, I'm going away, and when I go away, I'm going to send another comforter, comforter, and this comforter is not only going to be with you, he's going to be in you. I will not leave you orphans. Next phrase, I will come to you. Wait a second, you just said you're going away. I'm going to send another comforter. That's right. Because the inter-Trinitarian language of Father and Son and Spirit are significant to Pauline literature and theology and truth. Significant Johannine literature and truth as laying out for us what it means to be a Christian. Listen carefully. If you're a Christian, all of God is in you. Father, Son, Spirit. By virtue of the Spirit who dwells in you. All of God is in you. You see, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was at a location. In the New Testament, the presence of God, Paul says, don't you know what your body is? 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know what your body is? Anybody who would speak in a way that is improper... That's not of grace. Anyone who acts improper, not of grace. You have a lot to deal with in the, in the holy text. So the Holy Spirit is just that. He's the Holy Spirit. So when you look at the text that's here in verse number 10, if Christ is in you, let's move on. Somehow clocks keep moving on. But let's move. If Christ is, I, I will say this to you if I could, just a little parenthesis. This is free. So I told Dr. Leonard, I said, I am really struggling to get, with, get this message. He said, don't worry about it because you're going to be speaking in two weeks. Do part A today and then part B in two weeks. So, uh, thank you, Dr. Leonard. He knows me well. Thank you. Um, okay, back to 10. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive in you. That's what's giving life to your mortal body. Because of this imputed righteousness. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So verse 11. If the spirit of him, him being God. If the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who lives in you. You got it? You got it? Now, that's all introduction to my message. (laughs) Look at verse 12 and 13. I said to you, beginning in verse 12, all the way down to verse 30, you have the actions of the spirit. Now that the spirit rules in your body, And that's sealed. And all of God is in you. What are the actions of the Spirit? The very first action. The very first action. Is dealing with your sin. 12 and 13. So then, brothers. We, Paul places himself with them. We all are under obligation. Not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh. You must die. But if by the Spirit 
you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Just, just look what he says here. If you are living according to the sphere of the flesh, you must die. He's not talking about a loss of salvation, brothers and sisters. He's reminding the readers once again of the grievous sphere of flesh from which we have come. From which we have been taken. And it's eternal consequence, which is death. Then he says in verse 13, but if by the Spirit. In other words, it's not our sheer sheer self-discipline. It's not our personal effort to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and do this at 6 and do this at 7. I'm going to do all of these things. I'm no longer going to do that and I'm no longer going to do this. Rather, it's the act of the power of the indwelling Spirit. This indwelling Spirit which has made you free from the power of sin and death. In Paul's unique way, this Holy Spirit is going to work in your life to produce what He is. What God is, that's what He's producing for us to be. So when it says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, it's everything that God is. That's what's happening in your body by virtue of the Spirit. And then finally, he says this. The emphasis is on you. Look at the text. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Paul does not view the believer as passive. As you look at this text, you. We're not passive with personal holiness. This aligns with what already he has said back there in chapter 6 and verse 12. Let me tell you, he said, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. 6.12. The theology that is pouring through chapter 8 comes from 5 and 6 and 7. And this theology can be summed up in this. Through the Spirit, someone who's genuinely saved, God's life is producing in them a life that looks like God. So, when I put all this together, I thought it would be good in the last couple of minutes to conclude with a testimony. And I wanted to, I have it up here in my hand, you can't see it, but I'm reading to you a testimony of a man that I have greatly respected over the years called J.I. Packer. Listen to what he says. J.I. Packer came to Jesus in his first term as a university student at Oxford. He was discipled by a group of young pietists, and in Packer's words, quote, they left me no doubt that the most important thing for me as a Christian is the quality of my walk before God, end quote. Absolutely. Packer relates, they taught me the secret of rising from carnality to spirituality. He writes, quote, the secret had to be with being spirit-filled. The spirit-filled person, it was said, is taken out of the second half of Romans... Misunderstood, I would now say, writes Packer. And placed into chapter 8. 
where he confidently walks in the Spirit and not so defeated. Packer has a wonderful chapter on everything I just explained to you about chapter 7, working with chapter 8, and the significance of the Spirit in the mortal body. Packer was told he must empty himself and allow the Holy Spirit to take over fully. He tried to do exactly what he was taught. He said, quote, I scrape my inside, figuratively speaking, to be rid of all my evil. Packer grieved that this technique was not working for him. So I had to conclude I'm not spiritual. This alarmed him, and he said, I became fairly frantic. At this point, God providentially directed Packer to the written sermons, which I hold in my hand right here, the written sermons in Romans 8.13 by the Puritan John Owen, who preached them in 1656 on what it means to kill sin in your body. Packer said, God used what that old Puritan had written three centuries before to sort me out. In truth, Owen saved my spiritual sanity. He taught me the nature of sin, the need to fight it, and how to do it. So what I did is I went into Owen's book here, and I just took one principle that changed Packer's life that I thought I would just bring to you. This is just one. There's a number of them. And I have sincere apologies to Owen for doing this, reducing it like this. He said this, The vitality and comfort of our spiritual life depends upon our desire to employ the Spirit to mortify indwelling sin. Did you get that? The vitality and comfort of my spiritual life depends upon my desire to employ the Spirit, to work through me, to mortify indwelling sin. And he makes this statement, desire, listen carefully, desire is the index of the human soul. What you want, you will get. This is how he supports it. First, we never will fully root out any sin as long as we're in this mortal body. Doesn't that just make you smile? Aren't you happy? We will never fully root out any sin as long as we're in this body. I mean, brothers and sisters, here I am after all of these years. Pride, gossip, hatred, lust, all of that being dealt with. And my most pious prayer, I can have my most heinous thought. Second, the power to act in this way is to weaken the habit of sin. And this is only through the gift of God's indwelling spirit of life. This is not some resident power of the human will or personal discipline. Hence, the activity of the Holy Spirit is to produce holiness in your life. Romans 1.4 And he is called the spirit of judgment, who in Isaiah it says, he washes away our filth. End quote. So one, we'll never fully root it out. Number two, the power to weaken sin is not mine. It's the Spirit working through me. I am employing Him to do this. I want the Spirit to take care of every desire of my heart that's against God. You've got to say that. If you can't say that, this isn't going to work. If you love your sin more than you love the Spirit more than you love Christ, more than you love the Father, this is not going to work. Desire is the index of your soul, my soul. Third, 
We must weaken sin with the same violence and intensity and frequency as sin itself seeks to do to you. And it must be instant. The moment seducing imaginations, I like the way Owen says that, the moment seducing imaginations pierce your heart, now time is of essence. It's of essence. James 1 says, when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. So you must set your affection on the Spirit so that you can immediately strike, allow the Spirit to strike this lust before it embeds in your mind. And finally, the fourth one. The beauty of the indwelling Spirit, which weakens the habit of sin, He does so by implanting in us a new desire to cherish the beauty of God's grace. And divine grace stands in direct opposition to sin. Titus 2. Just as an untilled garden will produce weeds to wither our precious plants. I cannot believe it. I don't water weeds and they grow. Right? Just as an untilled garden will produce weeds to wither our precious plants, so sin left unheeded unheeded, will overgrow the sweet graces of God. The heart may become like a sluggard's field, so overgrown with weeds that you can scarce see the good corn. So now, focus your heart on the mortification of sin through the Spirit's power. Let the weeds of lust be daily rooted up. Let room be made for God's grace to thrive and flourish in your life, end quote. See, it's not just saying no. It's also recognizing that when the Spirit comes into this mortal body, there are graces that the Spirit wants to just pour out through me. For instance, Romans 5.5. Talks about the hope that we have. And how do we have this hope? This, this hope produces a love from God which overflows our heart through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. So, brothers and sisters, it's not just my desire to let God be God in my life, which is important, but it's also the beauty to allow the graces of God to grow. And the Spirit does this in His divine soil in our life. Where there was hate, there is now love. Where there is gossip, there is purity of words. All of this works because of the marvelous, marvelous grace of God.